Um, we're, we're in a uh, series on 1 John, and, and we finished up chapter 1, and we went over all the different things that, that John was trying. He was, he was trying to correct error. He was trying to bring, um, uh, bring some things to their attention. He was trying to show them things about God that is incredibly important for them to know, and I can't go over all of that um, because we want to be talking about today, as we look into chapter 2, we're going to just take the first two verses to begin with because he starts off with this great point. And I'm going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I encourage you, maybe even this week, be reading chapter 2. You can read some of the other chapters also. It's not a big deal. But I mean, chapter 2 is what we're going to be looking at. Think, be thinking about what it means, what it means to you. Those questions we talked about two weeks ago to help you with uh, studying the word. We encourage you to pull those out and use them. John says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anybody obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. So as we think back uh, in terms of what he was telling us, he was dealing with in chapter one, dealing with different options, different ideas about sin. Some people say, I never sin. And he's saying, you're crazy if you say you never sin. All right. Some people, some people were, were coming at it from a different direction. So, and, and he keeps coming at it to teach them, to help them understand what's involved. Now, out of that can come two things that can be a problem. But first point on the screen is the purpose. What is his purpose here? His purpose is you will not sin. And that's in chapter 2 verse 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I love how he starts it out. He starts it out very tender because what's happening is as people are reading, and John is understanding this, there's, there's a lot of things going on around them. There's, there's uh, the, the, the church is new, heresies are springing up that are pulling people in different ways and they're going, man, I don't know, that makes sense. I'm not sure. So John's writing this letter to correct and to help people stay on the right path, to help them chapter one, to stay in the light, all right? And so chapter one, the thing is, it can lead to two natural reactions. One is a form of fatalism. It's since I have this sin nature, because he definitely told them, you, are, you have a sin nature. You're, you are a sinner. Well, since I have this sin nature, and I cannot completely escape it in this life, then why try? What's the use? Discouragement. Have you ever felt that? I mean, you, you, you feel like, man, I just keep blowing it all the time. And so for these young Christians and for these people, many of whom are new to the faith and some who have been around for a while and, and different things are pulling at them, they're going, wow, John, you're telling us we have the sin nature. Well, that kind of bums me out because I got no hope then. I'm always going to be a screw up. 
And he said, you're right. You are always going to be a screw-up. Well, then what's the use? And it leads to discouragement. It can make somebody say, well, then I quit. I quit. All right, so that's, that's one thing. And with the heresies that have sprung up on the early church, some of them were born out of this reaction, out of this discouragement. And they would adapt other beliefs and kind of synchronize them with Christianity to help make it more palatable to them because they didn't like that. And, and John has to deal with that. The other side is it can lead to what we would call license. That is, since forgiveness is complete... And all we have to do, he told us, is, is to confess. That word confess means to simply agree with God. If we agree with God, then my sins are taken care of. Well, then, that's like giving me a blank check. I'm playing with the house's money on that one, right? I can do whatever I want and just go, okay, God, I agree with you. That was wrong. Sorry. And then I can just keep going. And I can, so I can sin with impunity. See, one side of it looks at it and goes, oh, I have a sin nature. I'll never be able to get a handle on this. So discouraging. I quit. The other side says, Jesus says this forgiveness is full and free. I, if I confess, if I just agree with him, then it's totally taken care of. Bingo. I just hit the lottery. That's what they start thinking. I can just do whatever I want. And so he's dealing with this. He has to deal with this. Now, this happens in this day. This isn't just like these were the things that happened back then. This happens today. People with a life with no fruit at all. Now, I, I can't say whether a person is a Christian or not. I can't make that, make that. But when they're not walking the way God wants them to walk, then they've fallen for a heresy. We see that with people who say, oh, and I, and I get this. I, I was saved. I came forward. Oh, it was sometime in the 80s. I don't remember. And I came forward. So I'm good. I'm taken care of. I'm all square with God. And John is saying, that's a dangerous place to walk. If you're not interested at all in walking in the light, if you're not interested at all in, in doing what God wants you to do, we, you've fallen for that whole idea. You've fallen for that heresy. Oh, you know, it's full and free. So pff, I'm taking care. I just do whatever I want. I can live however I want. Now, I can't say that person is not a Christian. That's not my job. But I can say this. They're on thin ice. That's a dangerous place to be. That's an incredibly dangerous attitude to have. Paul addressed this in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I think we have it on the screen. He said, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And the answer is key. By no means, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And he goes on and he fleshes out the argument because what he'd been telling them was God's grace is so big that when a bigger sin happens, it covers it. And a bigger sin happens and it covers it. And, a, and so he says, well, then that just makes sense, doesn't it? Some people would say just sin big because that activates God's grace and it just shows how great his grace is. And he says, he says, yeah, that's true, except there's a problem. If you have truly been renewed, if you've truly been redeemed, that's not what you want to do. Because you know how costly that grace is. Remember last week we said that when we begin to see the greatness of our debt, it opens our eyes to the greatness of his grace and what it cost him. And what it cost him. So I don't want to take advantage of his grace because I know then I'm just piling more pain on Jesus Christ. 
So John says, I'm not writing these things to discourage you from the pursuit of holiness. And I'm not trying to encourage you to sin. I'm writing to you so that you will not sin. Especially to those who look for license to sin, who think that it's okay. He says, look, remember, remember, walking in the light. That's what I've been talking about. The closer you get to God, the more things are revealed. Understand, this is a key thing I think for us to understand. If I walk in the light, more gets revealed. I deal with more because it's brighter and I see more. In my house, I had, I had uh, three daughters and, and a wife, four females in my home. That came out weird. I don't even know how that came out of my mouth. And anyways, they had this thing. To me, it is the most discouraging thing a person can own. It's a little round mirror that's a little bit curved, and it has light all the way around it. And I noticed that you turn that light on and you get close and, oh, man. I was like, my nose looks like the moon. It's just cratered. These humongous, no, one, you know, no wonder I still get zits and I'm 62. And I still, you know, and, and it's, why? Because it illuminates so brightly. It shows every little thing. To me, that's the worst. You get that and you go, oh, wow, I'm ugly. Oh, my goodness. So many imperfections. You know, I, I, makeup is not going to help me. <laughs> I, it, and b- why? Because it reveals. The closer, the brighter, the more it reveals. So in your walk with Jesus Christ, if you're never seeing anything wrong as you go along in life, you're not in the light. You're in the worst place to be. People in darkness don't even know what's happening. But if you're in the light, then in your na- just your normal course of actions, you're going along and you talk to somebody and then you're kind of walking away and you go, God, I kind of I exaggerated that a little bit. Why did I do that? That wasn't a good idea. What was I thinking? God, forgive me. for You know, you deal with it because the light illuminates it. The light shows you those things. Yesterday, I was driving to Williamsburg, and, and I know, it's, it's always cars with me, isn't it? It's always, I'm always having problems while I drive a car, and, and I'm driving along on 64, and that's the other problem, is 64 towards Williamsburg, and you get to where the construction is, and the speed limit is 60, <laughs> and there are people in the left lane going 50, but there's not a backup ahead of them, right? And so I'm going you are wasting my valuable time. Why? Because I'm so important. It's got to be, that's got to be the reason. I am such a big schmoke that you need to get over to the right lane. And I'm getting, getting PO'd. I'm getting a little bit upset about this whole thing. And so finally, a little bit of an opening opens in the right lane. And, and anytime that I go around someone, my wife always says, don't look at them. Just don't look at them. <laughs> but she wasn't in the car. So if she's not in the car, the rule doesn't, is not enforceable, right? Except that I admit to her now that I did it. And so I go by this car and there's a person, I'm not even gonna, we're not gonna even talk about anything, age, gender, anything like that. 
there's a person in the car, and I'm, I'm looking like, what the heck, 50 miles an hour, this is Interstate 64, you're going to get killed. You know, I'm thinking of them, I'm such a kind-hearted person. And I go by, and so I just look, I, I didn't, and I promise, I didn't even make a face. You know, I didn't go, or anything like that. I just looked, and this person goes, and I'm like, oh, wow, message missed. If people are passing you in the right lane, you should be over there. That's what I'm thinking. So I pulled in the left lane to keep going. And I said, just don't do anything else. And I'm, I'm such a, you know, I'm, I'm a lame-o, I'm telling you. Because I put my, my window down and I just went like that and I just drove off. And I'm driving away and I'm going, why did I do that? God, why did I do that? I did it because I'm upset. Why am I upset? Because I think my time is so valuable that to go 10 miles less over the course of 15 miles is going to use up a good minute, maybe a minute and a half of my life. Meanwhile, I'm stressed. I'm angry. I'm a little on edge because of the whole thing. And I'm thinking, why did I do that? And the light, so then the Holy Spirit comes in and says, Bob, this is sin. You just sinned. There's no sense to it. There's no reason for it. You were not thinking of the other person. You weren't worried about them being killed by a tractor trailer. You were just mad and you acted out. And I said, you're right. You're right. It is sin. And I promise. No, I didn't promise because I, I said, God, I'm sorry. I agree with you, God. That was wrong. See, this is, this is what's happening. He's saying, look, you can't, you can't, you can't use it as you walk in light. It's going to expose more and more. Little, all, all, as you walk, more and more things are going to come to light. More and more things are going to be exposed, and you're going to have to deal with them. And you may feel like, oh, man, I'm really struggling. And God's going, no, you're doing great. You're doing great because we're acting on these things. And so John is ta- telling them, he says, Look, if, you're, if you do sin, don't be discouraged. I want you to understand what is happening on your behalf. Now, this is very interesting to me because John's going to, in a sense, draw back the curtain. He's going he's to open the doors and he's going to show us this dramatic situation, this dramatic scene that is going on in heaven every time I sin, every time you sin. And it's a courtroom scene. So I want you to see point number two. We have an advocate. All right? And, and Eric, if you'll pull up verse one again. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, John says, I know it's going to happen. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he loads this up with courtroom uh, words, with legal terms that he's using. All right? And so he says, we have this, we have this uh, one who speaks to the Father on our behalf. That's the advocate, someone who, who is on our side, someone who's called alongside. It's a legal term. It's parakletos. It's the word we use for the Holy Spirit also, but it was used oftentimes in courtrooms in, in, uh, in Rome like a defense attorney. And so he's saying your defense attorney speaks on your behalf. Your defense attorney who is Jesus. So let's walk through this. Here we go. Courtroom scene. You ready? I, um, let's say, I, uh, although I never do, let's say I tell a lie. Um, and I, I just violated something I'm going to say later, uh, to say the word never. Uh, I, I tell a lie. So what have I done? I've broken one of the Ten Commandments. Now, why do I need a defense attorney? I only need a defense attorney if I am accused of a crime. Satan is identified as the accuser. 
In the book of Revelation, he is the accuser of the brethren. I lied, and the accuser is making the accusation in the courtroom of God, and I am guilty. So, God wants to have fellowship with me. John talks about this in, in chapter one. He, this intimate fellowship, he's very, God's very, it's, it's a very keen thing to him. He's very interested in this. He wants this for us. And it's a two-way deal. He wants to fellowship with us and us fellowship with him. It goes both ways. So God wants this fellowship with me. Unconfessed sin affects fellowship. And so Satan is saying, God, Bob lied. And that is against your nature. That cannot be overlooked because you are perfectly holy, God. We can't let this slide. You're perfectly holy. This is against your nature. It has broken one of your laws and you can't let it slide. And so God's light shines on this. The Holy Spirit illuminates it in my conscience. I think, man, I just lied. Why did I do that? And I say, oh, I'm sorry, Father. I agree with you that what I just did is sin. Yes, the accuser is right. I sinned. I broke your law. He is correct. So now my defense attorney speaks. And he says, sidebar, I don't know very many things about what happens in a courtroom or law. And so I just use words that I've seen on TV. And I saw on TV one time they said sidebar. So I think sidebar is a cool word. I'm going to use it. So my defense attorney, he's my mediator. And his job is to address this issue because he knows that it will break fellowship with the Father. He knows how serious this is. Even from small, what we think are small sins to, to big sins, he knows how serious this is in breaking fellowship with the Father. Why does he know how serious it is? How does he know how serious it is? Because it happened to him on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fellowship between Jesus Christ and God the Father was in some way broken. I don't understand how that all works, but I do know this. For eternity past, it had never happened. Jesus had never experienced that before. And suddenly, as the sin of the world, the sins of the world came upon Jesus, God the Father turned his back, and Jesus says, God, God, where are you? why have you left me? The Bible tells us that, the, that, that it was dark for three hours. I think that implies that's that time when the sin of the world was dealt with on the cross and Jesus was alone for the first time ever for three hours. So when he represents me in the courtroom, it is not like just some lawyer who's, who's doing what he's supposed to do. He's, he's, he's in it. It happened to him. He's got skin in the game. It hurts him to see it happen to me. Because he knows how personal and how powerful it is. And so I have this lawyer. You need to know who your, you know, it's important to know who your lawyer is. You need to know who he is because if you don't know who your lawyer is or you don't know what his qualifications are, you need a new lawyer, right? You don't want to walk into the lawyer's office you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I thought of this the other day. I saw this place, um, this a couple of weeks ago. I saw this place, and, and, and the, it was a little, like, store, like, restaurant-y store. And um, it was somewhere outside of Richmond. And it said, Chinese food and cheap firearms. <laughs> and I didn't know how that went together, exactly. Except I know no one complains about their food in the, you know, not, you're not going to complain about their food if they're packing, you're just not going to do it, right? And I just thought, this is, and I thought, you know, you don't want to walk into your lawyer's office 
and say, you know, big gyms, legal law, you know, degrees and package store. You know, you don't want to see that. You, you want it to be from a place where you go, okay, this person has reputable credentials and qualifications. And so John gives the qualifications of our defense lawyer. He says he's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So let's break that down. Jesus, in the Hebrew, Yeshua, the Messiah, the deliverer. My lawyer is named the deliverer, not Lowell the Hammer Stanley. My, my lawyer is Jesus, the deliverer. And that's what I want because I know sometimes having no carpentry skills but tried to be a carpenter, I know sometimes when you're hammering, you don't hit the right spot. Sometimes you hit your finger or your thumb and you inflict pain. So I don't want some guy that's throwing a hammer around. I want the deliverer because he delivers. I like that idea. If I'm going to court, man, you're the deliverer. I'm on your side. That's a good guy. Second thing is, he's Christ, the anointed one or the appointed one. I have a court-appointed lawyer. He is who appointed him. And it says the righteous one. He is righteous. Make sure your lawyer doesn't have the same problem you have. He is the righteous one. And it says he speaks to the Father. Now, this is an interesting phrase because in the Greek, what it has is it literally means they get face to face. They're very intimate. They're very close. He speaks face to face to the Father. I love that idea. I love that idea because it applies to us too. This is just a little bit of a radish trail. But there are certain places in the Old Testament and New Testament where we talk about as we go to God in prayer that it actually is like a face-to-face -face experience. And so in my imagination, as I try to figure out how these things could work, even though, you know, it's God, so how can I figure? But I think of God in, in, in the throne room and all the angels and the seraphim and the cherubim, cherubim and, they're, and they're, um, they're singing and they're praising him. And I start praying. I say, God, I, I just have really been struggling. And God says, hey, guys, everybody just be quiet for a second. My son Bob wants to speak to me. And so he gets down so that we're face to face. He says, what is it, Bob? Talk to me. Tell me what it is. And then I launch into my, oh, because I still feel like people are being nice to me and things haven't been going right and I fell and hurt my knee, you know, and I just, it can be all kinds of silly things, but God's okay. He's okay with that. When my kids were little, I tried to make a habit sometimes because of this, of getting down on a knee and getting face to face with them when they wanted to talk to me about something. And I wanted to let them know, this is how important you are to me. I get on your level. I'm not up here. You don't have to talk up to me. I get down on your level because you're my kid and I love you. Talk to me. Tell me. And then they tell me whatever it is and I go, that's the stupidest. And, but <laughs> inside, inside, inside. But to them I say, oh, I'm so sorry. Is your boo-boo okay? Do I need to kiss it? A little magical spit? Is that, will that help? We had magical I had magical spit. I didn't. It really helped. God gets face to face. We have a lawyer who gets face to face. He speaks to the Father. He's constantly facing him. Fellowship is being face to face with God, and our lawyer never loses that. This is my advocate with the Father. So the prosecuting attorney says, Your Honor, Bob just lied. 
and I'm guilty. The light revealed it. The Holy Spirit convicted me of it. I stand before the judge. The judge says, how do you please plead? And I say, guilty, your honor. I did lie. I'm guilty. And then my defense attorney, your defense attorney too, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, stands up and says, sidebar. I love that. Gets next to the father. Gets over, which, which I think is great. He comes over, he comes over to the side of the bench and he says, daddy? And I'm like, that's a good sign. If I'm in trouble, it's a good sign that my lawyer is the son of the judge. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good thing. And so he says, Father, your defense attorney is the judge's son. The father appointed your defense attorney. He appointed his son to be the attorney for one of his own kids. That's really good. Because that means the courtroom is kind of stacked in my favor. Last week, I was... I listen sometimes to different people to hear what people have to say about things. And I was listening to a, a, a guy that I really like him. He's an African-American pastor. And he was talking about this. And then he got, and, and I can't imitate, you know, that powerful, vibrant speaking. But then he said, your attorney is the judge's son. The odds are in your favor on this case. And the place went crazy. They went crazy. And I thought, wow, what a reaction. I should try that line. <laughs> I'm not making any, any, uh, you know, any kind of implications about relative spirituality between this congregation and that one. But I'll tell you this. In an African-American church where people have historically experienced courtrooms stacked against them, they got really excited that there's a courtroom that is stacked for them. There's a courtroom that is stacked in our favor. Our defense attorney is the son of the judge. And I'm a son of the judge, and you're a son or a daughter of the judge. And so it's all family. It's all family. I can imagine Satan go, this is not fair. And God's saying, don't talk to me about fair. Don't even go there, right? <laughs> Jesus Christ intercedes on your behalf in the courtroom of God about a sin that the Holy Spirit has revealed. He speaks to the Father face to face, continually face to face. This fellowship means he is face to face with him. And the Bible is shot through with allusions to this. I want to give you a couple real quick. Um, first of all, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Okay, I want to make just real quick the angel of the Lord. That is Jesus Christ. And Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So we have the courtroom scene. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. All right, and just understand, it's not that Joshua's clothes are dirty. This is something much greater than that. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. The angel of the Lord, wow, the angel of the Lord said, see, 
I have taken away your sin. That's what's coming. That's what's coming at the cross. I'm going to do it. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. They put a clean turban on his head and clothed him before the, while the angel of the Lord stood by. And so we have a courtroom scene and we have a judge and, and we, have, we have lawyers and we see this playing out and we see this a foreshadowing of what is to come. In Luke 22, I love Peter. I love him. He always likes to talk and I like to talk and sometimes he gets it right and sometimes he just totally blows it and I do the same thing. And in verse 31 of Luke 22, it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny, you will deny three times that you know me. You know, earlier, Peter's the one who said, Jesus, right in front of all the other disciples, Jesus, even if all these losers leave you, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Can you imagine, can you imagine how that did to build up the, the, the other guys there? All 11 like, Peter, Jesus wasn't here. <laughs> We'd do you in. You know, that's, that's, he says, I'll never, I'll never, he says, I'll never fall away. That's, I referenced that earlier. If you say never, man, you're a candidate for it. Oh, really? Never, huh? It's just, it's just the way it is. He says, Satan, uh, uh, he says to Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He says, you're about to do something terrible. And this is going to be a trial of your soul. This is going to be incredibly tough for you. And he says, I will pray for you. You know, I thought about this. Why didn't Jesus just stop it? He could have done that but he knows Peter needs this. This will deal with the pride. This will de deal with his sense of superiority that he's already demonstrated over, over the 11 disciples, over uh, in plenty of other circumstances. And so Jesus says, I'm going to pray for you. And he's going to pray for him in three areas. I really like this because Jesus knows. Jesus knows what Peter's going to do. He knows the overwhelming guilt that could come from this. He knows it could destroy him, debilitate him for the rest of his life. And so he says, I'm going to pray that your faith will not fail. And then he tells him, I'm going to pray that when you turn back, restoration. When you turn back, he says, I'm praying for your restoration. Your faith won't fail, but also your restoration. Coming back into standing with me and with God and with the people around you. Why? Why? So, the third one, so you can strengthen your brothers. Ministry, service. He says, you're going to feel worthless. You're going to feel, how can I face Jesus again? And you know what? He did. He did. You remember when Jesus goes to Peter and says, Peter, feed my sheep, shepherd my flock. He says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. But, but, but what was Peter doing at that time? He was fishing. He'd gone back to his old job. I think part of what's going on with Peter is he said, I blew it. This is, I mean, this is apostasy. I denied Jesus Christ in a public sitting. In a public situation, I denied Jesus Christ three times. That's apostasy. I'm I'm worthless. He can't ever use me. He must hate me. Well, I, I, I can fish. And he goes home. And Jesus, Peter, do you love me? Lord, I love you. 
feed my sheep. What is he doing? Ministry, service, just what I said I'd pray for. Feed my sheep, shepherd my flock. That's, that's what's happening. That's how he, that's your defense attorney. You have a defense attorney who loves you deeply. And then the third point is this. First of all, the purpose is that you will not sin. Second of all, our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Who is he? What is he? What is he doing? And thirdly, what has he done? The atonement. Verse two, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus serves as God's means to overcome a broken relationship between God and sinner. Atonement, it's an old English word, at one to bring back together to one. It is this idea, and theologians have all kinds of words, propitiation, and they, different ways they describe it, but it is the idea of someone who has ransomed themselves. They've paid a price to free another person. Redemption, atonement. So back at the courtroom scene, Jesus is talking to God, and he says, Father, my client is guilty, but dad I already offered myself in his place to receive the penalty that he is due when I did it on the cross. See, this is what I think is so interesting here. Jesus is not asking for mercy. Jesus is asking for justice here. He's saying you can't punish him for a sin that's already been paid for. I demand justice for Bob. I paid for that lie already. So it's double jeopardy. You cannot, you cannot prosecute him for that. I demand justice. These are my people. I paid for them. I bought them. The price of my blood. You know, in uh, 1 John 1, 7, when we were looking at that earlier, it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship uh, with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. And, and in the Greek, there's the idea of it purifies and it just keeps on purifying. It's an ongoing cleansing that just happens and goes on and on and on, continually cleansing us. The blood of Christ has eternal value. So practically speaking, how does this affect us? I was thinking about this because in the book of Job, there's one point, I think it's in Job chapter 10, where Job says, oh, I wish I had a mediator, an umpire. I wish I had someone who understands me and can speak to God for me. I wish I had someone who can be connected to me and connected to God at the same time. They understand me and they can speak to God and they understand God so they can help me. That's what he's crying out for. He's crying out for Jesus. So practically speaking, this, this desire for an umpire, this desire for a mediator, what Jesus has done for us as our advocate and as our atonement. What does that mean for us? Well, the first thing I think it means is, is that this deals with the, the problem of guilt in human existence. You know, I, I have a picture of Lady Macbeth here. It's because I, I think because it's, it's a, it, you can curse in church and, and you can get away with it. It says, out damn spot. And what is, she, what is she talking about? She's committed a crime. She's killed someone and there's a blood spot on her hand and it won't wash off. And she's crying at it. Why? Because the guilt is eating her alive. 
And she goes on as you read in, 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 in there, you read how she's trying to deal with it. And then a doctor comes and says, there's no cure for what ails you. No medicine will take care of that because you've got a guilt. You, you have guilt on your soul. And I think sometimes dealing with this concept of guilt, too many Christians think that confessing just kind of puts them right back on probation with God. They confess their sin, and so things kind of get wiped clean. And now, but now you better live it, or you're going to be in trouble. And that's a wrong idea. Because the record, God says, I place these things where they'll never be remembered again. They won't be brought up again. The record is expunged. It's erased. It's never to be brought up again by God. But Satan and our nature will continually remind us of guilt. Don't you? Have you ever felt that? Oh. Sometimes you can just be, you can just be walking along, driving along, just sitting at your desk, whatever you're doing, and you remember something you did that you're so, feel so guilty about. Why did I do that? And it, uh, and it comes back in technicolor. I don't know about that. I, I hardly, you know, I have to work to remember good times. You know, like the kids will say sometime, you know, remember that time we went to Virginia Beach? I'm like, yeah, there was a lot of crying on that trip. Man, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what? It was kind of fun now that I think about it. But, but bad things, especially if I've done something bad, it comes back, bam, in living color. You know, HD, 4,000 pixels. I mean, it just is like in my face and it just makes me feel terrible. And this guilt can eat us alive. And this is what Satan and even just our, I don't need Satan all the time to remember that kind of stuff. I, I can remember it on my own without his help. They remind us of, so how do we deal with guilt? Well, there's two ways of dealing with guilt, generally speaking, um, being very simplistic in the world. One way is to say you have not, what you did was not wrong. Just deny it. You say, I'm feeling guilty about that. Well, it wasn't wrong, so stop feeling guilty. Oh, oh. Well, that's great. And then you walk out and then a little later it comes back to you like, I can't help it. I still feel guilty. Because if you're going to tell something that something is not wrong, you got to understand something. That, that's a religious statement. That's a moral statement. You have to have some kind of authority to justify making that statement to a person. Some sort of religious authority to be able to tell someone that's not a sin. But people try that. The other thing that happens quite often is people try to make up for it. They try to work it off. Andrew Carnegie, in his diary, when he was about 35 years old, he said, this pursuit of riches is killing my soul. And so I have resolved to work for four more years and then quit and just invest, live off of it, and dedicate my life to philanthropy because I hate what I'm becoming. He was becoming a judgmental person. He was becoming a person he dealt, he was struggling with racism and he was struggling with all kinds of evil that he saw in his life. And so he said, it's the pursuit of riches that's doing this for me. And so I'm gonna quit pursuing riches and I'm gonna pursue a life of philanthropy. And he didn't. When the five years was up, he just kept right on going. And he kept right on going until he was very old. And then he says, oh man, what have I become? And so then he started doing all kinds of philanthropy, good things, libraries, buildings, all kinds of stuff like that. Unfortunately, all of that money was built upon the mistreatment of workers of whom he was one of the worst even for his day and age. 
And he tried to earn back what he had lost through good works. And it didn't work. It didn't work. So the problem is, in trying to work it off, is what is killing you is your guilt. And it keeps coming back no matter what you do. But in Christ, we have an advocate. He says, you did do something wrong. There's a reason you feel guilty. But that sin now has been paid for. It will never be brought to your attention again by me. You don't have to work it off. You've been declared free. Not only that, you've been declared righteous. You know, it's the two sides of salvation. He represented us on the cross. Our sins were transferred to him on the cross. He had that broken fellowship with God. That's the forgiveness side, the pardon side. The other side is he's still our representative. There's still a great transfer that is going on. His righteousness has been transferred to us. We now have a crown of righteousness that'll come to us at the end, end of days. And this idea of righteous is a very key thought in Scripture. I can't go into all the details I really want to share, but we're running out of time. When God describes you, he describes you as a righteous one. You are a righteous woman. You are a righteous man because you've been declared righteous. A legal decision has been made. A transfer has been made to your account. A transfer was made from your account. Your sins were laid upon Jesus Christ. And then a transfer was made to your account. His righteousness was transferred to you. So that when God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so when you struggle with guilt, you have to stop and think, what am I depending on? What am I focusing on here? What am I trusting at your core, God says you are righteous and it will lead you to actions that are full of grace. Um, another thing I think that, that, that helps us is this deals with anxiety and discouragement. The Bible says a lot about us and some things are good and some things are terrible that it says. The bad news is the Bible says you're a sinner. You're hopeless and helpless. The good news is you're accepted in Jesus Christ. Even as a sinner, you have been accepted. And so you keep these two together because they give you the full idea of who you are, of what you have, where you've come from, where you're going. And so when you struggle with guilt or discouragement or anxiety, those types of things, you need to identify, what am I trusting right now? I am discouraged because something besides Jesus is standing in my place. I'm trusting something else for righteousness, for meaning, for hope, for security. I need to recenter. I need to say, God, forgive me for hoping in this, whatever it is, a retirement account, a, a, a doctor, a medicine, uh, whatever it is. Forgive me for hoping in that, a degree. And help me to refocus on you, my righteousness. We're going to get into this next week, but one of the things I think that's very key in that we're getting into is that Fear can pressure you into certain behaviors very easily. When my kids were small, I could use fear to get them to do all kinds of things because I was big and they were little. I mean, just the way it works. But fear doesn't change anyone. It doesn't change a child. It can change their behavior, but it doesn't change their heart. But love, love enables you. Love empowers you. That's why, that's why we're going to get to this in 1 John. He says, this love, God is love. This love 
it will enable you to live for him. Because love begets love. Love begets grace in our lives. And his love for you, his love for the whole world is where the power is for us as we live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your word. That, Lord, as we think through this courtroom drama, our, our attorney is your son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And because of that, we have an able attorney who has never lost a case. Father, help us to trust him and not ourselves as we deal with these issues in our lives. Help us to see who we are at the core, a righteous one because of Jesus Christ. And help us to make our identification there, not in anything else. We thank you for the hope that your word gives us in Jesus' name.